Well, hi everyone, Father Alex here. I'm the Vicar of St Matthew's Church in Burnley. I'm also the host of the Godcast, which hopefully you're going to watch now. I'm also the author of Our Daily Bread, uh, Our Ghost to the Altar, priest story, which is out now, so go check that out. I do hope you enjoy this interview that's coming up now with Luke Lana, who is a, a priest uh, specialising in practical theology. And this conversation uh, focuses on the issue of class between uh, the church and the, the challenges and the compromises that that, that uh, brings to us in the Church of England. If you enjoy this video, do check out others or perhaps subscribe down in the uh, bottom uh, right-hand corner. There are over 140 interviews now, I think, of uh, Godcast guests, so plenty to look at and something for everyone. So thanks for watching and hope you enjoy this interview now with uh, Luke Lana. Well, I'm delighted to say that uh, joining us on the Godcast this week is uh, Father Luke Lana. Now, Father Luke is based down in uh, Luton or Bedfordshire, uh, and he is a, a priest, but he's also a bit of an expert in practical theology. And um, we're going to talk to Luke a bit about his own career, but also about some of the issues that are around the church, uh, particularly around class and structures. So, Luke, it's brilliant to get you on. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing well. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me, Alex. It's good to talk to you. Um, I remember seeing the um, that famous bit of footage uh, on on the telly with you in a couple of years ago, and and I remember well the the major impact that had on my training incumbent at the time. Um, I was a curate then, and it really helped our local parish church to to start grappling properly with what role we might play um uh, uh, back then so yeah it's really good to to talk to you yeah well that's that's very very kind of you Luke but um just just quickly touch on that R rather than be about me what do you think it was about that film that had such an impact I think I think it just exposed people to the realities of life that many 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 people in our society are facing and I don't know why. I think it's partly testament to the filmmaking and partly testament to the people that they spoke to. Somehow it really captured people. I think they, they really did a good job of making it capture people. And if I remember correctly, my, my training incumbent's words were something along the lines of, you know, how could we not get involved in social justice mm. after seeing that? How could I not realize it's part of my duty as a parish priest and for us as a congregation so it really nailed it home for people i think it really shocked um it really shocked people in a good way yeah thanks luke um you're um it, you may be you will be known to many people but there'll be many people out there who, who mm. are unfamiliar just tell us a bit about your context to becoming a priest i mean you sure. were you were a bricklayer, bricklayer luke weren't you yeah i was, I was a brickie for 10 years so I was self-employed, ran a little building firm, um, used to have other subbies that worked for me, um, mostly in the domestic area. So we built extensions on people's houses, that kind of work. Um, so I, I worked with my hands right up until um, end of 2014. So it's a long and winding story, but essentially I, although Church, I've sort of been on the periphery of church for most of my life. I uh, I came to a faith of my own when I was 16. Um, and some years after that, I'd always had a difficult relationship with church. So I, I, I'd, I was in this little Anglican church plant that met in a school. 
uh, where I grew up in Aylesbury in Buckinghamshire, which is a little market town sort of place, little rough and ready market town. Um, and we had a really good youth worker at that Anglican church plant. He, he and his wife were former missionaries and they had a very vital faith, which attracted me a lot as a as a gobby working class teenager. Um, and the other thing about them was they really took risks on us as young people and invested into us and saw that we had something to contribute to the church, um, which for me and some of my quite Larry mates, um, <laughs> you know, they were pretty courageous in, in yeah. this wee little Anglican plant, letting us preach and lead worship and all sorts of things. So um, fast forward in some years, I'd, I'd sort of, fallen out with church and I hadn't lost my faith but I, I couldn't I never felt like I fitted in I couldn't understand why it seemed so much easier for other people to engage with church than it did for me and and I'd sort of explored a, some sort of call into a ministry I'd been involved in youth work for a bit but it never worked out and I kept falling out with pastors and things like that um, I ended up many years later while I was laying bricks um, joining a, a Christian motorcycle club because I was mad into motorbikes and I went to meet up with these guys from this motorcycle club down at the Ace Cafe on the North Circular in London. And um, I mean, a couple of things happened. Firstly, it's the first time I've been in a Christian group where I didn't look considerably more rough than everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> one of them used to um, one of them used to say he sort of thought I was a bit middle class. Uh, a guy <laughs> called Rocky, dear, dear friend, he lovely, lovely, but he's a truck driver. Um, but secondly, I, I realized this was an environment where I could be a Christian and not have to pretend to be anybody other than who I was, not have to pretend that I'm not a bit rough around the edges. And, yeah, OK, I swear a bit too much. And, you know, the kind of banter and 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 the kind of way of being between people in environments like building sites and others and in motorcycle clubs. And these were men and women who had a very real faith, but um, but who off many in many cases came from the wrong side of the tracks. And one of the people in that club, a chap called Sean Stillman, was a minister. And um, he runs an incredible thing, or helps run an incredible project called Zach's Place in Swansea. And it's a little old gospel chapel. And the congregation of that chapel is made up mostly of bikers, people experiencing homelessness and artists. So you go to a, a sort of midweek service or Bible study there, and it's this beautiful chaos of, of people whose lives are very chaotic, but it is really an incredible thing. And me and my wife were really captured by this experience um, of meeting Sean and going to this place um, my wife's a barber by trade. Um, she didn't get any GCSEs. Um, she just recently got her first GCSE last year near the age of 40. And um, she's one of seven kids and she's the only one that's got one as far as I know. Yeah. <laughs> so, so when, I mean, you talk about the, we were talking before we started about the report that came out from the Church of England. You know, you, you kind of get these funny things of people whose mum and dad went to Cambridge and they're like, oh, well, I'm very working class. And I'm like, mm, we're not. not quite talking about the same <laughs> thing here, are we? <laughs> Because you had like a second hand Sierra or whatever you yeah. working class, you know. And, and um, you talk, um, like you talk about your working class uh, kind of upbringing. Just yeah. describe that for us. What was it like? Do you know what I? I mean, I in my younger years, I didn't go without. Um, we had a relatively comfortable life. My family by the time I was born, my dad came from a very very working class family um, in a council house, um, struggling to get by. 
my mum's family story is quite interesting. Um, so her family going back a few generations was actually sort of reasonably well to do and fairly wealthy, I think. I can't remember how many generations it was. It was like maybe three or four, something like that. But one of her like great grandparents or whatever married a common girl um, and was disinherited from the entire from his family, never spoke to him again. So he ended up being quite poor. Um, so my mum's family were, were, were I would probably describe as sort of aspirational working class, maybe even to sort of lower middle class. But um, my mum left left school and started training to be a nurse, but didn't finish it. Um, so neither of my parents had a university education, neither of them. My dad, I think my dad was only about 14 when he left school. Um, he worked as a printer's apprentice. But they'd both done okay, particularly my dad. He's a real old, he was he'd become a salesman by the time I was born, and he's a bit of a hustler, my dad. Um, so he sort of was doing all right for himself, you know. We had a little wimpy house and a and a decent company car. But then when my parents broke up and my dad's company went down the toilet, that was when I was about 14. Because of not having that safety net that comes with sort of family wealth or I mean, I'm not even talking wealth, I'm talking about just not being poor. Yeah, uh, we just lost everything. Um, so me and my dad ended up close to homelessness, um, had to get council flat and the council were really unhelpful in trying to get us housed. Um, and so then we really experienced life was pretty tough for a few years. Then I've I've had periods of my life where I've lived below the several periods where I've lived below the poverty line where I've lost weight due to being hungry. So I have experienced quite a mixed life. I mean, especially yeah. now being an Anglican priest. Right. You know, I've, I've, I live in a house I never dreamed I'd be able to live in now um i can't afford to heat it but because <laughs> i'm only on half a well, stipend yeah, ditto brother ditto yeah yeah <laughs> i'm sat in the corner of it yeah no heating on and but yeah yeah well you, I know you, what you mean yeah we can afford slightly better weather down here in luton but um not by much yeah it so does was... very much feel like a northern <clears throat> town stuck in in bedfordshire luton yeah. in a funny sort of way post-industrial town so how does all this materialize into a calling to the priesthood and and yes and and you're how did your background make that pathway? You know, I mean, mine was quite mm. difficult. I worked mm. in a shop all my life, and I was like, and it, and it and it was troublesome, which I talk about in the in my own book. But what about yeah. you? What was it like for you? So I'll, I'll I'll carry on briefly where I left off and fast forward. Um, so my mate Sean, that was doing this interesting stuff, said to me, "Have you first of all?" He said, "Have you ever thought about doing theological education? Because you're obviously very interested." I used to enjoy reading theology and thinking about it and talking about it. And I said to him, "Well, no, I haven't. I never. You know, how am I going to afford to do that?" And he encouraged me to give it a go, and we got a bit of help from our local church, which had a bit of money. And um, I started studying part time, um, and then bit by bit, I gave up days of work doing bricklaying to do work here in Luton. So my wife was working in a charity supporting sex workers. I ended up becoming a chaplain in a homeless day centre and, and other things. And we lived off a, a sort of a pittance of support from local churches and grants and things like that. Mm. In the midst of all of this, I got to know the local diocese a bit better and the, the local suffragan bishop and others and got invited to come and give some presentations on my work and things like that and, and ministry. Um, and in the midst of all of that, my mate, Father Eddie, who's a priest down in Leavesden in Watford, is a, he's a real character, he's a lovely, lovely fella, comes from a working class uh, Roma family. Um, 
and he he um, took me out for a Nando's next to St Albans Cathedral after this meeting. And I'd gone to the cathedral on my motorbike in all my club colours and it almost got sort of turned away at the door, even though I was there for a meeting with Bishop Staff kind of thing. <laughs> but um, he took me out and he said, look, he asked me a few questions and he said, look, he said, have you ever thought you might be called to be a, a priest? And I just laughed at him because I thought, <laughs> well, yeah, right. Like, look at the priests that we know, um, you know, <laughs> it's never going to happen uh, I don't have the right education background I don't have the right family background I'm too outspoken uh, you know I look a bit rough um, but he asked can I write I was in a I was a member of a parish that was in vacancy at the time so we didn't have a vicar uh, one of the benefits of being in an area like Luton is we can't afford many clergy down here certainly not full-time so he wrote off to the bishop and one thing led to another and, and here I am today. Mm. But like you say, it's a bumpy road. And this report that's just come out on the experiences of working class clergy in the Church of England demonstrates it's a bumpy road for people that have come from backgrounds like ours. And I would say every step of the way. So the meetings with the vocations advisor, the meetings with the, the um, director of Ordinands College, curacy, sign off, all every step of the way I expected to be rejected. You know, every yeah. step of the way, I thought, well, this is this will be the end of the road. And goodness knows what I'm going to do now, because I've got too lazy to go back to laying bricks. <laughs> <laughs> but do you know what, Luke? I mean, I, even even when you, you know, when you selected, I, I, I think the 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 pathway is not very helpful for working no. classes. You know, I, I was uh, selected and I just wasn't in a position to uproot my family to a college, Yeah, uh, you know, because we were reliant on my wife's salary um you know it just wasn't practical you know and I ended up training regionally which was which was fine and was a was a fun mm. and interesting experience not without challenges but we don't make it easy do we for people who, who we try and help so to ask you a question Alex do you think because I, I it's something I've thought about but I've not put words to really but do you think there's something specific about the working class experience that makes it almost sort of traumatic to uproot your family like that, to go off to a college. Cause the idea terrified me. I don't know yeah. why I just sort of thought, well, what if it goes wrong and I get kicked out and then I'm going to be homeless and have no job. You yeah. Know? And it, and I think it still terrifies me. You know I mean? I'm, I'm from Burnley. I grew up in Burnley. I work in Burnley. I'm a priest in Burnley. And the, the prospect that God might call me somewhere else is, is quite frightening because yeah. I think if you're from the working classes and, you know, particularly if you're off the, off the States, you feel the security about that, you know, where other people might see it as a vulnerability. I do mm. think people on the estates feel secure where they are. You know, yeah. I do feel people that live on the housing estates or, or work in a, a bakery or in a factory that there's something about the security of it all, isn't there? Mm. I, I don't know what you think. I totally agree. And I mean, I've noticed, so I, I um, was a lay minister here in Luton um, for a couple of years and through my, training uh, so I did like a context-based training a bit like you you know I did a kind of regional based thing um and but even that's quite snobbish isn't it like you know well it, it was you it's, know it was oh, funny. You're, not, well, you, you're not you mean you didn't do Cuddleston or you did oh yeah yeah you know, well funnily enough I did so I did a context-based pathway which yeah. meant I got to go off to Cuddleston and do you know what in many ways, I really enjoyed it because I got to go off on like free weekend retreats to Cudston and eat like yeah. loads of food and <laughs> have cheap beer in the common room and all the rest of it. And and it was really quaint, this little college in the middle of nowhere. Um, 
So, yeah, in many regards, I enjoyed it. I wouldn't have enjoyed it residentially. And, and, and you know, that's nothing against the college. There's some lovely people there that work there. But, um, yeah, it would have... Um, it wouldn't have been the one for us and particularly for the rest of my family, they wouldn't have coped at all um, with that environment. Not at yeah. all. And so coming back here to Luton after being in Bedford, you know, I did my curacy in Bedford and there's not, you know, there's not many places you can come from where going to Bedford feels too middle-class, right? <laughs> but it did, it was a civic church and it, it felt, I loved it. I loved my curacy in many, many ways, but it felt uncomfortable. The environment I was in, yeah. to me i felt i i couldn't just be myself and yeah. so i've really noticed the difference coming back here to luton to work it in an urban parish here mm. um i just feel at home I, even yeah. on the interview day i came i met the church wardens and the people here and i just breathed a sigh of relief i was like oh this is home these yeah. are people i understand and they understand me yeah I think that's one of the, you know, the positives. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't just want to slag the Church of England off. I think, in my context, the the bishop was very accommodating, you know, and and was wanting to do a place near where it would feel like home, and that happened to be St Matthew's, which was fabulous. I want, I want to ask you, Luke, how you move? So, so you're ordained, and and um, but 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 you're now, you know, a bit of an activist, aren't you, for this issue about yeah. the classes? What was it that kind of drove you to that point we what were hmm. some of the prejudices that you you had seen that kind of wound you up and thought i, I need to i need hmm. to speak out about this it starts partly in how i was grew up how i was brought up and my nan who was the the child of irish immigrant um had this famous phrase i don't know what your swearing policy is on this podcast so feel says free to it is it says it is but my nan had this phrase she said when we were growing up and it was, you can't stop them shitting on you, but never let them rub it in. And she, there was this sort of them. And I, I don't know, it was really couched in the language of class, but there was a them and we, the, the them ran everything and we didn't get a say. And, and there was this sort of sense of struggle, you know, and, and um, I grew up with that and, and I saw that at school and elsewhere. Um, my calling back into sort of this idea of ministry came through work here in Luton, like I say, with people experiencing homelessness, with sex workers, young lads getting groomed into criminal exploitation. And I saw how badly our society is failing people. So in, in within the tradition of Catholic social teaching, they would sometimes talk about being evangelised by the poor. And it was through these experiences, not of just standing behind the counter at the soup kitchen and doling out soup, but making friends, getting to know people who were really on the sharp end, way worse than I'd ever experienced, you know. Um, and and they converted me to Jesus of Nazareth, this 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 house builder um, yeah. living under empire, having his labour exploited. And I, I came to the point of realising that if Christian faith and Jesus of Nazareth doesn't mean anything, have anything to say or give us anything to do in this context, then it's an irrelevance. Then I'm, I'm out. I'm not interested. But I found that it, it did. And you know what? Part of that experience was going and doing my theological education with the Church Mission Society, which is a missions organisation 
And we really looked at some of the liberation theologies, these, these Christians and theologians and ministers who've wrestled with what it means to minister in these environments of extreme injustice and poverty. And that gave me some language and that helped me reflect and understand. So that was a really empowering experience for me. But that that is what led me into this stuff is, is to say, you know, if 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 my faith has nothing to say or do about any of this, then I'm not interested in it. Um, if it's just pie in the sky when you die, to use the words of an old trades union song, then what is it? What is it about? Yeah. And of course, um, I was uh, recently in, in Sheffield for the Estates Conference, Logan, and they shared some data there, which was quite harrowing and quite shocking. You know, this this gulf between what we described as uh, a middle class, upper class and working yeah. class. And this this particular slide was regarding clergy. And, you know, and I think the church wants to embrace people like you and I. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. Is, I think they want to. Yeah, I do agree with that. But it is dominated by those mm. people who want more like us. You know, so so it makes it quite difficult, doesn't it? You know, and uh, you know, I, I'm I'm on General Synod, and there is nothing a more stark, clearer example of the class structure there. You know, I mean, I, yeah. I you know, I, I'm I, I'm not the most confident person, so I, if I have a chip on my shoulder, and it's evident anyway, it's probably evident at, at Synod because I do feel like a complete fish out of water. <laughs> so, how do we turn that structure? How do we how do we kind of infiltrate those those class structures and battles to make a difference? Because, you know, uh, it is still very middle class, isn't it? You know, it is very still quaffing wine mm. and nice cheeses and all that, you know. Um, and it goes beyond that to two things. On a sort of relational and cultural level, it is a certain way of being in the world and seeing the world. And it just isn't the way of being in the world and seeing the world that I experience, which makes at times the way I speak and carry myself deeply offensive, not just on the level of accent. I mean, yeah, that's all there, but I mean, the, that, that kind of angst I was brought up with about this them is very unwelcome in the Church of England, because frankly, the Church of England is part of the them and has been and yes i think people like me and you are more wanted now than but we weren't historically um we really weren't uh secondly part of it for me is to say when we start to talk about social class we're moving beyond the realms of just identity and microaggressions and inclusion we're moving towards the realm of assessing the material circumstances people live in. We're assessing how people are eating, what kind of building they live in, what is happening to their labor at work, or what is happening to them as part of this vast labor reserve of, of, of that are labeled with things like the underclass or the, you know, uh, whatever language people want to use. And as soon as you start to get into that level of material analysis of labor conditions um, and, and, and pay, you have to start talking about justice, not charity. Uh, and the minute you do that, you have to start not being wedded to the status quo of things as they are, but you have to have a vision of the world as it should be. And not just a vision, but some tools and ideas of how we're going to get from the world as it is to the world as it should be 
preferably fairly quickly. And that is where I think the greatest barrier comes in an institution, which let's face it, the Church of England is about as stuck in the mud of the status quo as you can possibly get. There's the old phrase, isn't there? Like a mighty tortoise creeps forth the church of God or something like that. So we are so wedded to things as they are. We're so allergic to change that the very notion of upending society to make it more just, just as we read in the Magnificat, which we're supposed to say or seeing every night as Anglican priests. I know many of our colleagues have given up on all that, but this idea of the mighty being cast down from their thrones, the rich being sent empty away. You start talking in that language in a synod or, or whatever, despite it being biblical language, people start getting nervous and shuffling their feet. <laughs> yeah, it's really true. You know, um, you know, my, some of my frustrations like come from, you know, I'm on, on synod and this very real and very, um, sensitive subject about LLF and same-sex relationships about, you know, the, a minority group who are kind of seeking a, their place, their rightful place in the church. And, you know, I, I'm openly an inclusive priest, but alongside that is also that, 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 that pocket of working class people that are, you know, absolutely uh, in many places kind of, I wouldn't say forgotten about, but, but not really getting anywhere near the, attention that we should be giving them if we are to be truly Jesus kind of gospel led hmm. uh, priests and witnesses. I wonder hmm. what you think about Bishop Phillips uh, position where, you know, this, this distribution of wealth where um, you, you alluded to it a few moments ago, you know, you don't, hmm. you can't afford in Luton many stipend priests, but where do we need the full-time stipend priests in Luton? Where do guess we how many people? guess how many retired priests there are that live in my parish and come to my congregation? Wow. Not as many as in the villages, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> the answer is none. You know, uh, I don't this... know. I don't know if we've got any retired priests that live in the whole deanery. Actually, as far no. as I know, there might be somewhere, but um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we we have all these rules that come out of synod about you know you have to say mass every Sunday in in your parish, which I wholeheartedly agree with. You can't do that here. If I go on holiday, the, how hard it is to get someone to come and cover because there isn't anybody. You know, the parish I served was in vacancy for 15 months and they just had nobody most of the time. Yeah. Uh, so I, mean, I think you, you get yeah. onto the redistribution of wealth. So uh, firstly, I want to address very briefly what you said before that about the LLF stuff. Like you, I'm an inclusive priest and I agree. When we're talking about LLF, what we're talking about is inclusion, i.e. we're saying we want... Um, LGBTQ plus people to be included and participate in the church, which I wholeheartedly support. When it comes to class, I'm not sure we're talking about inclusion because we're talking about that something needs to drastically change because I, I, a class stratified society in my mind is not in line with the values of Jesus of Nazareth and the Christian faith. So when we talk about class, we're actually saying we want society to change rather than just say we need a better diversity and inclusion policy um you know and, and there's something by very nature of being working class particularly those who are most excluded whereby you don't even get to have a voice in that conversation because you're just not in the room so 
And then you start to look at that from an intersectional experience and you wonder about, well, what are the experiences of an LGBTQ person who's working class? What are the experiences of a person from the majority world heritage who's working class? Because actually a significant proportion of the working classes in this country mm. are from majority mm. world heritages. In the global picture, the working classes are the most diverse people group on planet Earth. So there's a complexifying needing of how we talk about these issues and who is actually in the room and gets to speak. The second side is who controls the resources, like you say. So um, I'm a member of Unite the Union's Faith Workers branch, and I've been doing some digging into uh, how stipends are funded and the church commission has pot of money recently. Um, and I'd like to see, I think a full-time stipend is a decent wage when you consider that you get a house. I mean, that's way more than I've ever earned in my life full-time stipend plus housing so I, I don't feel that we're unfairly paid however if your pay is not matching inflation you're having pay cuts so I think at the very least we should be making sure stipends just keep up with inflation now the church commissioners fund stands at about 10 billion pounds at the moment and the latest report says they they are um, making about a 10% return annually on average over the last 30 years. So that's a good long length of time to work out that average. So 10% of 10 billion is a billion pounds. And the cost of stipends in the Church of England, the main fund for the whole country is 250 million, mm. which they don't fund. So already you've got an annual income there that could fund that whole stipend cost four times over. Then you look at the statistics and see that 50 million pounds of the church commissioners returns each year are spent on the ministry of bishops and archbishops. So if we can afford to spend 50 million pounds of that return on bishops and archbishops, why can't we afford to spend another 50 million? So it's just say for the sake of argument, 50 million um, in parishes like mine, where our diocese isn't eligible for link funding for lowest income communities because the rest of the diocese is reasonably wealthy mm. but that doesn't seem to translate into making sure every parish has a full-time priest here you get into the numbers i serve a parish of about twenty-one thousand people uh, in in an area of very high deprivation on many indices to do that two and a half to three days a week is challenging it really is challenging a friend of mine recently moved on from a post where they had two full-time priests, a, a priest and a curate, um, to cover an area which had a population of 1,500. I mean, you can you can learn everybody's name in the entire <laughs> benefits. <laughs> okay, it was spread across a few different village churches, yeah. but it, the actual pounds spent per head on ministry there was roughly 20 times, no, 40 times what it is it's not that's not a small difference that is injustice in my opinion it is so i would want to push the church commissioners to say why are we holding on to incidentally the un published a report a couple of years ago saying they could combat most of world hunger with six million uh, six billion dollars sorry so we're sitting on a pot of money that's significant enough to make a major dent in hunger across the world and yet we're not investing it even in our own ministry Never mind anything else. To me, I'm I'm sorry, I'm probably saying something that's going to land me in hot water. That is fundamentally unjust and it needs to change. Otherwise, what profit it a man to gain the whole world but lose or forfeit is very self. Yeah, what is the I, point in having all that money? 
Yeah, quite often, look, people who, who dishing out the money, they they want to they want to know what the return is, don't they? They want to know. Of course, they do. What, yeah, they want to count it in. What's it in it for me? And you know, I, when I when I started on General Synod eighteen months ago and listened to the president's address, you know, telling us that church attendance is now approaching one percent. Mm. You think, well, whatever you've been doing, or wherever your money has been going, it's not—it's clearly not working. Yeah, and and I wonder if you hold the same view as me, Lou. You know, I I absolutely believe that the growth of the church is in the margins. It is in the working class environments. It is in the working class parishes because, particularly at this time of crisis that we've been all living through, is that people have uh, are seeking something, aren't they? Or something is. Something's mm. not quite right with their life. They perhaps can't put their finger on it. And I think in our context, you know, some mass has become a bit of a haven. It's become a bit of a safe place. It's become a place where people are judged and people can just be what they want to be. Um, and, and not too much expectation at this point. Obviously, the challenges that moves on is how you progress them to be living Christians, living out their daily lives, sure. you know, but it's... Sure. But I do, I do absolutely believe that if we invest in our in our most deprived parishes, the payoff um, might not necessarily be monetary, but it will be be Mm. extremely valuable in disciples. And it's just the right thing to do. You know, the lectionary passage for this Sunday talks about a rich man storing up all his grain in storehouses, thinking, oh, well, I'll be secure for the future. I mean, what an allegory for how we how we use our money in the Church of England that is. You know, yeah. it is it is a perfect allegory of, of storing up all this wealth for what <laughs> when we should be investing it. So I think um Al Barrett and Ruth Harley use some really interesting language around this in their book Being Interrupted. And they talk about this sort of two models they talk about uh, for the use of resources in churches. One, they call it counting in. So counting in is sort of putting a price on souls. So it's like if I spend if I give you a ten thousand pound grant, I want at least twenty people to start extra people to start coming to your church or whatever. Um, there's a, there's another kind of counting, which is better in in my view, which is counting out. So it would be more like, well, if we give you 10 grand, I want you to have started a food bank that's doled out this number of food parcels. I mean, at least that's a little bit less selfish, right? Um, but they talk about what the church really needs is to be interrupted and, and to stop counting people in that way, because mm. otherwise people's souls start to become a commodity which yeah. is really worrying and dehumanizing to me. So um, you, you to go on a bit of a weird metaphor here or, or, or comparison, so bear with me. During the Vietnam War, when things were not going so well, the US government hired a guy called McNamara who ran the production line at the Ford Motor Company. And he was like an expert in, in productivity, basically, and, and measurement. And they thought by hiring this guy, he would make the war effort so productive and so efficient that it would turn the tides around. And so he brought in all these measurements for how they were going to measure what they were doing. And and the people on the front lines, the sergeants and that were saying, all we're doing now is spending all our time measuring all this stuff. And actually none of it matters. So even though on paper what they were doing was meeting his measurements, the war effort went down the toilet. Mm. Um, Not that I support the Vietnam War. But um, I think we do something similar in the church where there's an old phrase a mate of mine uses, which is that if you don't measure what counts, then what you measure becomes what counts. So if we start measuring things that don't really matter, all our energy and focus goes on doing things that don't really matter. Yeah. 
Um, so we need to really, I think, regain our soul and be re-evangelized by Jesus of Nazareth in the church to say, what actually matters? Yeah. What are we doing? What is this all for? What yeah. are we going to leave as our legacy? What are we going to spend our time and our money on? And they are so that Luke is so important for people to hear. You know, I, I you know, I, I left the world of retail for Argos for twenty years, and my whole life was around measures. It was around key performance indicators. Yeah, KPIs. Yeah, you know <laughs> what your sales were, what your what your financial services were, what your health is. So, you know, and and I, and I didn't leave the church to do that. I leave Argos to do that in the church, and. You know, when when we we were fortunate, I say fortunate, we've got uh, associate priests with us uh, that's being funded. But even with that, people want to know what's the return. You know, how many more bums on seats will you be? What kind of, yep. what kind of? Uh, I remember somebody said, "Do you think they, the the people might give on your estate might give five pound a week?" I was like, "You're you're having a joke. You haven't got a clue. They mm. they come and quite often they can't give anything, and if anything, they take whether it's a food parcel." or a meal you know but that's that is the as you just that's the gospel of jesus of nazareth yeah and at some point the church needs to acknowledge that and respond to it in a way you know um we, we have to beg borrow and steal most of the time and it, and it feels mm. it feels unfair it mm. feels unfair really i mean we you know when when you serve a parish like that and you have to sit through a very well-meaning presentation on increasing your parish giving by getting a contactless card machine and things like that i have to try very hard not to burst a blood vessel when i have to sit and listen as if the narrative is if you just did your job a little bit better then you'd, you'd get a bit more money in and you'd be all right you know yeah. that makes me furious to be honest i'm just not the person that's saying it's that's their job to do that it's not nothing against them but it's a narrative and it's a model of economics which we need to come away from as the church. Yeah. To quote Bono, which is something I seem to be in a terrible habit of doing recently, because <laughs> he's an interesting character. He's, he's he famously saying the God I believe in isn't short of cash, you know, and neither, in fact, is the Church of England short of cash either. No. So, to me, where I am, the best that that the church commissioners have to offer us is a discount on a card reader when they're making a billion pounds a year. That's offensive to me. Yeah. It really is offensive. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and people in the estates and the working classes wonder why we do it, you know? Yeah. When you say, oh, I've got to pay whatever it is, 15, 20, 30 grand. What? You, you, where do you get your money from? We get it. We get it from you guys, you know? But I think your point, again, is really important, you know? Priests and... and Team uh, church teams are working their butts off in these environments. Yeah, in these settings. Yeah, and know. it comes at a massive personal cost, doesn't it? Let's well, be tell honest. Tell me about it, mate. It, tell it, me about it's it. It's not easy being a priest anywhere because of what you hear and what you see, but the level of pain and injustice. I, I, I got to the point of having to ask some serious questions about what I believed after some of the things that I started to see. You know, the unjust and unfair suffering that people who don't deserve it go through. And I'd come from quite a sort of reformed theological background. And I had to say to myself, to be really blunt with you, Alex, if God has chosen for things to be this way, then God can fuck off. <laughs> I'm not worshipping that guy, you know. But if the God I believe in is somehow, in some mysterious way, I don't really understand 
trying to lead us to come together and struggle for a better world. That's something, that's something I want to be part of. You know, Luke, you're touching on my buttons because, you know, people will be surprised at the, uh, the, that language, but I'm not surprised at that language because that's what I think, you know, I think, uh, and I think Church of England does that to you. You know, it's like, I yeah. kind of think ultimately I work for Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah. I'm just happened to be paid by the Church of England and, and live in one of their houses. <laughs> that's know? a good way to put it. Yeah. But and you know, yeah. Like you said earlier, Alex, I don't want to just sit here and beat up the Church of England because I've met so many lovely people. I'm really grateful. You know, I've got a fantastic African bishop here, Bishop of Bedford, who's a real supporter of a lot of the justice work that we're trying to do. Um, I've met so many wonderful, kind people from all sorts of backgrounds. But we have to say at some point that as an institution, our culture is sick. You know, that's nothing against individuals within that institution. But I would say institutionally, we are part of a sick culture. The whole Queen Anne's Bounty episode is de demonstrates that, that we're holding on to this money, a large part of which came from the transatlantic slave trade. These are riches which came from injustice, and yet they're being you know, greedily hoarded and not given away. Yeah. How you can justify that is... Do you know what, Luke? I try, I try and keep these podcasts to half an hour and we're 40 minutes in, but it's fascinating. <laughs> it's fascinating stuff because what you say there, I think it's really interesting. You know, I, I sometimes think, you know, the, the people in power are afraid to, to give some of that power away because mm. actually it's a kick up there. It's a kick, a kick up the arse for them to yeah. recognise that somebody else and somebody from a working class background might actually be able to do it better. You know, I, and for all of us, that's the call in our own ways. You know, I recognise that despite my class background, I do have some privilege that comes from my gender, my ethnicity and other things. Um, but ultimately, what does Christ call us to? And if we're running over time here, might be a good place to stop. In Philippians chapter two, the writer says, if you've got any consolation in Christ, if you, if you want to in any way respond faithfully to this gospel, be like me, be of the same mind of Christ Jesus. And then he then, on, he then goes on or they then go on to recite a hymn, what's thought to be one of the earliest hymns or doxologies or creeds of the early church, which tells us that Christ did not consider equality with God something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. And that is what God is calling the Church of England to do. God is saying the Holy Spirit is whispering to the Church of England today. If you have any consolation in Christ, then be of the same mind of Christ Jesus, who emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, pouring out his life for others, not building crosses, but bearing crosses, yeah. not building crosses for the poor, for the LGBTQ community, for uh, people from majority world heritages, for the planet we even live on that is suffering under this current system that we live in but bearing that cross in solidarity with those who suffer. That's the Jesus I worship. That's the spirit I try in my own failing way to follow, getting it wrong every day. But that is what I believe the spirit is calling the Church of England to today. You can call me idealistic or utopian if you want, that's fine. But I, for one, intend to roll up my sleeves and get my hands dirty for as many years as I've got. Yeah, I'm into that, Luke, absolutely. Like I've, 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 I was going to talk to you about your book. Do you want to plug your book? Or it's out there. Yeah, it? fine. It's it's out there. <laughs> SCM Press, Confounding the Mighty. I'm, I never made much money as a bricklayer because I'm not very good at selling myself. So, 
yeah it's out there check it out uh, what i would say it's an edited volume there's seven other people that contribute to it plus a brilliant forward by anthony reddy and a brilliant afterward by professor yogriga from vanderbilt um and big congratulations to professor anthony now a professor of black theology for the first time at oxford university yeah. those stories need to be heard because not all of the people that contribute to that are professors some of them are people who've never been published before and their voices are important talking about their struggles as working class people related to their gender, to their ethnicity, mm. to struggles like caste, um, all kinds of stuff. Um, so please do check it out um, for the sake of of those voices that need to be heard. Yeah. Cheers. Luke. And just just quickly, I mean, you come across as a very humane hum uh, man with a lot of humanity. What do you like to do when you're not... Uh studying the gospel and and teaching and learning what well, you like you look i guess you like your music you mentioned bono yeah there's two things i like to do and both involve being outside i haven't been a brickie for 10 years i struggle being indoors too much yeah if i'm feeling tired i go and potter around in the vicarage garden it's shown me what access to a bit of land can do for you you know we've got a nice garden here with lots yeah. of trees and plants it's been amazing talking to the birds and then secondly when i'm feeling a bit more energetic i'll get out on a local river kayaking Nice. Watching the bats and the kingfishers and having a awesome. laugh with your mates, getting Fabulous. my pulse running a bit. <laughs> well, Luke, it's been great. And and everybody who might be listening um or watching this on YouTube, thank thanks for checking us out. And um, you can find loads of interviews like this with with theologians, with musicians, all sorts of people. Just just check out the Godcast. And if you enjoy this interview, perhaps subscribe for it to us as well. So Luke, thanks so much for your time. Um, I really appreciate it. We send our love to Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Down the M6, is it M1? Down to Bedford. Go yeah, back. yeah. Down, down. Anytime you're in Luton, drop by and I'll make you a cup of tea. Cheers, mate. Thanks again. All the best. Ta-ra now. Well, hi, everyone. Father Alex here. I'm the vicar of St. Matthew's Church in Burnley. I'm also the host of The Godcast, which hopefully you're going to watch now. I'm also the author of Our Daily Bread, uh, Argos to the Altar, pre-story, which is out now, so go check that out. I do hope you enjoy this interview that's coming up now with Luke Lana, who is uh, a priest uh, specialising in practical theology. And this conversation uh, focuses on the issue of class between uh, the church and the, the challenges and the compromises that that, that uh, brings to us in the Church of England. If you enjoy this video, do check out others or perhaps subscribe down in the... Uh, bottom uh, right hand corner there are over 140 interviews now i think of uh, godcast guests so plenty to look at and something for everyone so thanks for watching and hope you enjoy this interview now with uh, luke lana <laughs>